And uh, continuing our conversation with Dr. Stover, get a little bit more into the benefits of the nuclear sector and domestic energy supply and mining. One thing I don't understand, which I, I hope you can explain to me, is what is a small nuclear reactor? Like I, I, I keep hearing about them, I read about them, but, but is it basically a small plant that can uh, uh, power a, a community as opposed to something a, a city? Like what is what is it? Well, you know, there's yeah. You're first of all, it's. Um, the product of uh, continued advances in nuclear power technologies. And the, I, the concept is, a, in fact, as you say, a, a, a smaller generating facility that uh, can power local areas rather than trying to do large regional areas. Um, the other thing, the key to it is the, the hope the intent is that this be a design and a type of reactor that can be built in a factory, you know, a standardized factory constructed unit that can then be moved to various locations. On top of it, it's worth noting that the, uh, not only is the US Department of Energy uh, strong proponents of this development, but the US Department of Defense is also extremely interested in seeing this development for military applications with our remote military bases around the world. Um, I've been told that uh, in the Middle East in particular, a large number of the US ca military casualties uh, were related to uh, convoys transporting fuel to these remote locations. So there's a vulnerability there that can be eliminated if you can place a small modular reactor at one of these facilities to uh, provide the necessary uh, power or electricity to operate the whole uh, base. Interesting, interesting. I, I hadn't even thought about that. So with the small nuclear reactors, is, is one of the intents that you almost get like a Ford assembly line type of production where you've got consistent designs and consistent uh, parts so you can basically mass produce as opposed to having a larger uniquely designed facilities is that am i getting that you know i, I that's the that's the intent okay and I, let's say that's the hope as well you know it still comes down to uh getting regulatory agencies to really sign on to a truly standardized design that can be repeated and at the same time getting the customer, whether it be a community or a utility, to accept the fact that they will get a standardized design. They can't be customizing it for this particular location. You know, They have to modify the location to accommodate the standardized design. Interesting. It's, so so you know, just like McDonald's, just like McDonald's, when you go into McDonald's, you know your Big Mac's gonna be the same no matter where you go. Exactly. And, the and that makes it look the same too. <laughs> okay. And, and that, and that makes it uh, more streamlined for the regulatory process. Not only that, it has a tremendous impact on the front end capital requirements as well. And the time involved. Again, if you've got something being standardized, they're all built the same. And if, if 
you know, comes out of the, the factory. Yeah. Uh, that's that's quite different from all these custom designs that have characterized the large nuclear power plants that are now in service. Yeah. And there's and there's I, I don't think there's an understanding of how advanced the new and how highly regulated the nuclear industry is over the past 50 years, the changes that have been and often people's perceptions are based on very old information, but there's been massive and significant safety and environmental everything's changed over the past 50 years yeah that's absolutely the case with with uranium mining whether it be conventional or isr there's been a again you know in the cold war era of the 1950s and the 1960s the focus was on national defense uh, that was really the the main purpose for mining uranium up until the advent of the nuclear electricity era in the late which began in really in the late 60s and up through the 70s um, and as a result there was a lack of information and a lack of understanding about the safety standards and the health risks that conventional miners might be exposed to again in the 1950s and the night and maybe up into the early 1970s but there were dramatic changes both in terms of the understanding of health physics and in the enhanced, uh, as a result, then improved regulations, and particularly on the safety side. Um, no question, uranium mining in the United States is part of, as you say, is part of the nuclear fuel cycle, and it is by far and away the most heavily regulated business in the United States, and certainly the most heavily regulated uh, mining industry in the United States. Yeah. So, so you you came into mining, and this is a question I always ask people. So you came into mining through oil and gas. Yes. Uh, so you're you're a, a chemical engineer by education, PhD. Um, so you, I guess, were in the mining industry before you realized you were mining in the mining industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, as I said earlier, this is a uh, institute recovery. Is a multidisciplined area. I, you know, I don't think of myself as a conventional miner. I, I, I don't dig dirt, um, but uh, it was an evolutionary process. Uh, you know, I, I was took on a, an R and D assignment at Atlantic Richfield and got an opportunity to a, a very rare opportunity for someone working in research to be involved in a in a relatively short period of time with a a pilot plant development, and then a commercial development, and working out uh, hands-on in the op in the field with these people, putting these things together and operating them. Uh, I got spoiled. I was not going back to hydrocarbon <laughs> research. I uh, wanted to stay out there with a hands-on situation. I so, and I've been very fortunate over the years. So, you know, starting out with Atlantic Richfield, I went from there to a very small company and uh, Everest Minerals, and then uh, later on to uh, Real Alga Mining Corp, a, a large international mining company. And then, of course, with Energy Metals, and then back to a large company with Uranium One, and now back to a small company with Encore Energy Corp. It's uh, It's been an amazing career, and I've yeah. learned a great deal of going between small companies, startup companies, and large established companies. It's it's fascinating. And you're, and you're still learning. And, oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, we joke about it around here as uh, someday I'm going to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Because you know? <laughs> we, we haven't even talked about Group 11 and what you're doing there to look at how to apply ISR to, to other uh, metals. Oh, yeah. This, this is absolutely uh, an exciting time. And uh, with Group 11, we're really now um, taking a, a real serious look at being able to apply uh, alternative ISR processes to the mining and recovery of gold, as well as potentially other, other minerals of value. Um, you know, in, in the case of gold, uh, we're looking for alternatives to the use of cyanide. And we certainly are uh, at this point, uh, very much aware and very comfortable with, with the alternate chemistry that we've, uh, have access to, and it's very benign. It uses uh, everything that's, uh, again, it's like ISR with uranium. Um, it's it's exactly. a benign thing and it doesn't have the environmental upsets and impacts and certainly not the concern about uh, the leaching fluids being used. Uh, yeah. Everything we do can be restored and reclaimed. Yeah. Um, but really like any ISR project, and we're, we are limited into what kind of uranium, what kind of mineral deposits we can look at. They have to be ones that are amenable to fluid flow. And we have to be able to flow fluid through the deposit. Yeah. We have to be able to bring that fluid in contact with the mineral we're trying to dissolve and put into solution and get it out of the ground. Um, in many and, cases- and, and, and control where, where the control fluids the are going. So the fluid, yeah. yeah. So in many cases, we're working below the water table, in particularly in the case of uranium, because we've got hydrologic control. But there's other means of control as well that we should allow us to extend it to deposits that are in dry uh, zones as well. But the biggest thing is being able to get that fluid, that lixiviant or leaching fluid, into direct contact with the mineral so that we can dissolve it and put it into solution. There are deposits where the target mineral, whether it be uranium, gold, or copper, or whatever, um, may be encased in clay or may be encased in shale where we can't get that direct fluid contact. And so those kind of deposits are not gonna be amenable to in-situ recovery uh, per se. And it may just be that those are only amenable to conventional mining. And that's just the nature of the world, I guess, in that respect. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to talk for a little bit about the importance, and, and we'll just refer to the extraction industry uh, okay. to, to include uh, hydrocarbons, gold, uranium, you know, mining. The importance of a domestic extraction industry, because in my adult life, I've watched everything move offshore and for the benefit of the environment. And we, we just don't see it. We don't like it in our backyard is, is really the message, but we like the benefits of it. So the importance of a domestic extraction sector. Well, several points, but the first one, to respond, your point about the environment. Everyone needs to appreciate that the United States has the most stringent environmental requirements 
placed on all mining and all mineral extraction, including oil and gas. Our regulations, our restrictions are far more severe than anything you see in the undeveloped countries, anything you see in Asia or Eastern Europe. Um, if you want a safe environmental, environmentally sound method for extraction, you're gonna find it in the United States. The other thing, a key thing that's come home now, particularly with the situation in Ukraine, is the uranium industry in particular, but we certainly are not alone in this situation, um, has become almost totally dependent on Russia and the former summit and a number of its former satellite countries for the production and the processing of the first front end of uh, the nuclear fuel cycle. Uh, and that's particularly true when we talk about the emergence of the small uh, modular reactors, because they run on a more highly enriched uh, quality of uranium than the, the existing reactors. And right now, the primary source for that material is Russia. And, um, and it's because they, as state-owned entities, have been able to manipulate the market, depress the prices below what's really um, an economic break-even point even for most of the Western world in terms of uranium mining. But like, but I, having said all that, it's equally valid when we talk about uh, uh, wind power, solar panel. We're dependent on China in particular for most of our solar panels, many of our uh, the components that go into it. Uh, many of the minerals that are essential for the uh, construction of wind turbines uh, are coming from China, the rare earths in particular, and we depend on the the Belgian, what you on the Congo for cobalt and the fact that they are use make extensive use of child labor in uh, very unsound uh, methods. We're extremely dependent on the source of the metals and particularly the uh, metals that are necessary for the construction of uh, wind turbines and the uh, generators and uh, that are involved in uh, in those turbines. Um, that's just the reality of it. And we put ourselves in that position, unfortunately, just, and we really need to be more conscious of that and making a more concerted effort to develop yeah. sources, particularly domestically, to enhance the uh, uh, our own national security yeah. and our own ability yeah, no, to have clean energy. Yeah, no, no different than than you know watching all the manufacturing leave the country. You know, you, you you can't have an economy that's based for I guess you can as long as you're the the world's global currency based around the financial you know, impact of the dollar. But at some point, um, you need to pull this stuff back, and I'm hoping that this is the beginning of it because it's. It's um, I've had the benefit of being in an industry town and seeing what it's like with 100% private sector employment, uh, mm -hmm. not just 100% employment, but all related to the fact that there's this economic engine that's driving the whole region and the wealth that's created. It's, it's, I, th I think the mining industry has had a 
policy of uh, keeping its head down, just staying out of sight, you know, in order to keep uh, keep moving. But I, I think self promotion is important right now. Yeah. Well, there's no question that the uh, the mining industry has uh, perhaps not been the best salesman of their promoter of their own social economic benefits that they provide not only to the local communities, but to the country as a whole. Yeah. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, it's not a new phenomenon. It's as long as I've been associated with some aspects of your of mining, uh, I've been very much aware of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, you, you know, nothing's perfect, but it's, I think it's the best sector there is the collective extraction industry and it, it, it drives and creates the wealth that comes from all of the downstream benefits from it. Yeah. And, and it's not the same industry that it was you know, 50, 50, 60 years ago, a hundred years ago. And um, yeah, you're right. It has to do better self-promotion. Well, yeah. some, one of the things that gets overlooked and, and one of the mining associations many years ago had a bumper sticker that said, if you can't grow it, you've got to mine it. And, you know, in reality, that is the truth. And of course, and it's really extraction industry, what you're talking, the use, making use of the subsurface and surface minerals that are there and yeah. assets that uh, we have. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it is an asset. And it was placed there for a reason. Yep. Um, I, I also um, really feel that the industry creates a lot of talent and it's all transferable skills. You know, when you are um, a metallurgist or a fabricator or an accountant, um, you may learn in, the, in that industry, but you're taking it elsewhere. And um, the impact that you can have from Highly educated employment is phenomenal, just mm -hmm. like yourself. <laughs> well, it's also true of the uh, uh, plant operators and, you know, the skills that we need at that, in this digital age, uh, uh, you know, where there's very much a real need and opportunity for people that have uh, been through, um, have an associate's degree or have been through some of the training programs. We need electricians and plumbers and all kinds of people like that, just as much as uh, any other industry does. And the opportunities are are there. And, and the thing, I, and, and educate me a bit more on this, but in the in, in situ recovery technology, those are some very uh, skilled jobs that you're creating. They, they are. And... Um, you know, particularly the need for, uh, as you were alluding to, um, engineers and geologists in particular, um, but also, uh, you know, in, in the operations of the facilities, we need people that are, are technically savvy. They don't have to be experts in writing co software code or something like that, but they need to be um, comfortable with operating with modern technology and uh, even in, in running the plants and stuff, because we're more and more, we're like every other industry, moving yeah. towards more automation and more uh, control. Yeah. And electronic monitoring, everything, right? Yep. Well, Absolutely. I 
Dennis, I, or Dennis, I did that again, Dr. Stover. Sorry, my informality. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed talking. Um, I want to get you back and we're going to talk another time about Group 11. Sounds good. And um, yeah, I, I love your, your Michigan football there. We talked about it before <laughs> we started filming. So you're a huge um alumni uh fan and i think you go to every game don't you well we have season tickets but unfortunately anymore we're we do well to, if we get there for two or three games but we have a lot of family both my wife and i uh we have a lot of family still in michigan and there's a long line for family tickets uh we never have any shortage of volunteers to take our seats <laughs> so so the the blood runs blue it, yeah, <laughs> my side of the family anyway. Yeah. On the other side, it may run a little bit, uh, be tainted by a little bit of Notre Dame uh, enthusiasm, but okay. we tolerate. I tolerate that. Oh, oh, good. Well, uh, on 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 my family, on my husband's side, you know, you know, Bill uh, quite well. Uh, he's a UTEP, um, but his dad was Oklahoma. Yes. So, so we are true blue Oklahoma fans. So we're, I understand that. I'm well aware. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Stover um, of um, Infamy in the field of in situ recovery. Thank you again. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure to have a chance to visit and uh, talk a little bit about ISR and its uh, role in uh, helping develop clean energy and supply the future in nuclear. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you.